you know, as a lot of you know, you cannot apply all of them to any business. I would say, you know, it highly depends on like the the, the nature of the business, right? Our featured speaker today is an investment principal at Excel Hub Venture Partners, co-founder at Sharp Focus VR, and a mentor to many, many of us, in fact. Redmond, it's a great pleasure to have you as our featured guest today. Thanks so much for being willing to share your journey with us. No, really happy to be here. And thank you, Nancy and Spencer, for doing this. Uh, you know, the nervousness is kicking in. So if I started just too much, just let me know. I like this to be really conversational, so feel free to ping me if you have any questions or anything that you want to touch on. So a brief overview of who I am or what I do. Originally, I'm from Hong Kong, so I grew up there, and I stayed there till I was 17. So I came to the U.S. when I was you know, about 18, halfway through high school. So I was in Connecticut for a brief while, and then I moved to, eventually moved to Boston as I went to Boston University. So I've been in Boston ever since. I started off, I guess in sophomore year, I started to be really interested in economics. So I reached out to like a local professor. And then at the time he was working in a textbook and I was just bugging him all day. I was like, oh, maybe there's something that I could do. And that's kind of like how I got myself into semi-academia a little bit, you know, just, just doing some ad hoc research work for him. And when I graduated from college, he offered me a job. So I started working for him full time for, for on the book. So I worked on a book for like about, I, I want to say four to six years ish, you know, started from sophomore year in college. And when that got published, uh, it, was a, it was an economics textbook on the whole economy. Um, he's talking about the shifts from macro to micro. You know, he's thinking about, you know, the U.S. should be more micro-focused. As you know, a lot of you would know that the U.S. relies a lot on the Keynesian model, and he thinks it's not optimal. But, you know, we can save that for another day. So after that, you know, I thought to myself, I want to switch to something new. And at the time when I was, even when I was a student, I was like an avid networker. So I always talked to people and, you know, as students, a lot of them had a lot of entrepreneurial ideas. So even though I never got involved in like a formal setting, I was able to meet a lot of entrepreneurs. And that's kind of like, you know, kept my innovation sense going and, you know, my involvement in the innovation ecosystem. So after the book was published, I was like, okay, I want to do something new. And I kind of got, got into like a transitional period where I started working for BU. So I still work at BU a little bit, but, you know, I've, I've been spending a lot less time on this now. But, you know, at BU, I do a lot of assessment of private businesses because a lot of our alumni, they are success, successful entrepreneurs. And what I do is try to assess the, the, the value of their private businesses. And that kind of leads me to reading a lot of success, success stories of, you know, what makes a good startups and all that. So on the side, I've been networking and going to a lot of events. I've been getting involved with like the entrepreneurship unit at BU. So they started off as with like a really small room, but later on they you know they got like twenty million in funding. So now they're like a full force, you know, um, like a flagship entrepreneurship unit now. But you know, and one thing led to another. I eventually landed you know with my current position with my team you know in Boston. So a self venture partners is basically an angel syndicate that focuses on early stage LATAM startup. Prior to a cell hub, I didn't really have a lot of, you know, uh, network in the LATAM area, but through the bootcamp, you know, which I attended in 2019 in Brisbane, Australia, 
I, you know, we have a lot of Latin friends. So, so that's kind of like, you know, I, I elaborated and expanded that part of my network within the bootcamp community to be on. So I'm really happy that happened. So at SL Hub, I, I basically meet with founders every day. You know, I try to go over their pitches, you know, talk about business ideas. Um, first, first as investor, but also more, you know, as like a friends. So, so I have a lot of, I've seen a lot of companies that have come to me and I feel like they're not quite as a stage to expand internationally. And then I would have like offline conversations with them. Yeah, maybe we could bounce ideas. So that's something that I really enjoy doing. And that's kind of why, why I do a lot of mentoring work outside of my regular work. So right now I'm mentoring with MIT Sandbox, which is a, a rather new entrepreneurship unit for them. It's open to all MIT students, except for PhD, I think, you know, because of uh, the technology and patent issues. But, but MBAs and all that, undergrads, they're all you know, within the scope. And there's like a Moroccan version of Sandbox, which is called the UM6P, um, basically a mirror of Sandbox, but they're trying it, to do it in Morocco. And personally, I liked it a little bit better because uh, that that's had us a lot of impact right away. You know, um, MIT students have a lot of resources and the Moroccan students just don't. So I'm happy to do all these things. And lately, I've been trying to expand it more, you know, internationally. So I've been also mentoring with like a like joint program with Stanford and Thailand. So trying to find my roots a little bit. You know, I'm originally from, from Asia. So try to try to help entrepreneurs over there as well. And that, you know, kind of brought up up to speed, you know, of who I am and what I do and happy to talk about any topics. I'm a person of a lot of interest, so you cannot possibly bore me. <laughs> I honestly, um, I, I didn't know you had that that experience writing the book either. That's really neat. <laughs> well, I was more like, you know, like the grunts doing the groundwork, but, but, but it was really fun. Really awesome. I'm sure that that experience came in handy in some manner. Um, I, I was actually going to ask you that about the boot camp experience. Were, were there any concepts in particular that you think um, you've really put to use for yourself personally? Definitely. So personally, I'm a, I really admire the 24 steps framework. But you know, as a lot of you know, you cannot apply all of them to any business, I would say, you know, it highly depends on like the the, the nature of the business, right? You know, for me, there are two types of business. One is more like product market fit, let you know the market is demanding something like this. And the framework that was taught was more geared towards like innovation driven startups, where the 24 steps would make much more sense. Uh, by the way, Sandbox employs sort of like the 24 steps as well. Uh, my comment with, to that would be 24 steps are something that is really helpful, you know, to, to know what's right to do. You know, I don't believe that there's like a white rate to do entrepreneurship, but you know, with the 24 steps, there's a lot of you know mistakes that you could avoid. So that's kind of like how I read on it. I think you know, just take whatever you need from the 24 steps, uh, and you know, that could help your startup go a lot further. But you know, of course, it's always situational, and you know, trust your instinct. Uh, one of the presentations that stood out from the bootcamp was Erdine's on hunches. I, I believe you know, as an expert in certain fields, you have a lot of hunches. So sometimes as a mentor, you know, we're, we're feeling this from like, we have the advantage of feeling this from an outsider's perspective. But what I always say to like, you know, the, 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 the people on the other side is like, you know, you're the expert in this, you've been doing this. So trust your hunches, just be careful about the validation. So, so that would be my biggest takeaway from, this, uh, from the bootcamp, you know, apart from like network. 
But when I applied to, to the bootcamp, what I had in mind was to become a better investor. So I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur myself. But of course, now, you know, with Shot Focus, you know, which I'm going to talk about later on, is, you know, I just happen to be an entrepreneur now, too. Taking a step back, you know, I wanted to be a better investor because I want I would like to understand, like, you know, what challenges startup face. And it's really tough because you have so many faces as an entrepreneur. But when you talk to investors, you always have to put on your best face, you know, per se. A lot of the questions you couldn't ask, even at the board level, right? You know, if you have a board of directors, there are questions that you would worry about, you know, it being a stupid question. And sometimes that takes away the, the value from, from having an, a, a board of directors. So, so I want to say, you know, Bootcamp was a safe place for us to kind of experiment that. And I really appreciated that. And so I actually, uh, I don't know if he's on a call, but, you know, I actually reached out to Carlos before I applied to the Bootcamp because he, he wrote a piece on Quora about how Bootcamp transformed his, you know, views on entrepreneurship. And I was really impressed and moved by that. And that's why I reached out to him. Uh, and, you know, his response was really detailed and talked about, you know, how the entrepreneurship journey goes at the Bootcamp. And I was just impressed. And that's kind of like how I got to the Bootcamp. Of that answers is a little bit. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much. Now you've recently, as you said, started a company, Sharp Focus VR, with uh, Joel and Patricia, I believe. Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So Sharp Focus VR is a platform, a VR virtual reality platform to train cognitive skills for people suffering from ADHD. And as first, uh, I reached out to Joel because I, I thought, oh, this might be a really great idea to scale in the US. And then we got to talking a little bit, and Joe had just has so much passion for this. And I was really moved by the mission. <laughs> I didn't set out to join the team, to be honest. Like I was just kind of trying to provide a little bit of you know help on the business side, because Joe and Patricia, they're both from a science background. And you know, when I saw their pitch, I feel, oh, this has so much potential. You know, the, the message just has to be sent to more people. And one thing led to another. Long story short, I joined the team as more like the business guy on the team. But I've been learning so much from them every day, you know, just because they, we come from different backgrounds. Like, I, I think that's like a, that's like a small, you know, the bootcamp network itself is like a bigger version of that. So I'm really happy that I joined the team. And Sharp Focus, uh, we just ran two successful pilots. So one of them was in schools and one of them was in juvenile facilities. Uh, we, we set out to help them, you know, with their ability to, to control their emotions and also some other stuff like you know attention span and reaction speed like those type of stuff so we um joel developed like a bunch of modules that would you know train specific areas of the brain so that people who use our technology could you know better control themselves and that is really important because from our pilot from the juvenile facilities we found out that there could be a potential correlation between self-harm and also ADHD, or like pre previously undiagnosed ADHD. So this has a real, very real, this is very different from what I've been doing in the past because sharp focus has a real, fairly, very real impact, right? You're saving people. Like, you know, for, for us, a lot of the times when I see it, oh, it's just like a bunch of numbers. But, you know, when you, when you put into that context, you're actually saving people. And I think that's what you know motivated me to really join the team and try to bring the best self, so that so that we could do this a little bit, you know, at scale. And I want to quote Liana from you know a bootcamper from from the past, like you know, she said, "It's not so much about the rejection that she gets; she is always concerned about the missed opportunity to push this further." And I couldn't have said it better. 
I love that quote. I really do. Yeah, those words meant a lot to me too, personally. So I want to share that in my mind, you're the go-to guy for mentoring. Um, because as I've come to know you, I've seen that you really listen and um, you ask really good questions. When you give advice, it feels relevant and it's given very thoughtfully. And as I've learned, I'm not the only one who thinks this way. Because there have been a couple cases when I suggested that someone in the community reach out to you and bounce their ideas off of you. And as it turns out, they've already sought your guidance. So my question is, how did this happen? How did you become this go-to mentor for so many people? Yeah, so so you're asking like how I got into you know mentoring, right? Basically, yeah, it, it kind of happened by chance. So even before like a formal involvement in those all those programs, I like I said, I was always talking to people, and I guess at the beginning it's more just like bouncing off ideas off each other, but you know every now and then you realize that you have more expertise and knowledge in one area than the other person, then it kind of shifts to like a mentoring mentee thing. But it's always a two-way street for me. So so I wouldn't say there was like an exact moment where I was like, okay, now I'm a mentor. But my first really organized mentoring um, activity was with TrapCam actually. So TrapCam is actually like an international um, summer acceleration program for, they say it's for international entrepreneurs. But from my experience, like I've done two badges. They, a majority of them are from LATAM. So I think it originated from Mexico. That might partly explain why. But through TrapCam, I was able to meet, you know, some really established investors uh, in the Boston area, you know, because they were judges and I was a mentor at the time. And I, I connected with them and we, we've just been, you know, more getting more involved with the ecosystem here. And interesting fact, one of the judges actually introduced me to a cell hub, you know, uh, so that's why I joined the team. And that, again, speaks to like the, the fact of networking, right? You know, or, or like, you know, how important it is for you to be out there and be vulnerable so that you can, you know, you, you can go get connected to different pieces uh, of the ecosystem. So that's kind of like how I got into mentoring. And what kept me going is always like the passion that you get from entrepreneurs. It, I, I think entrepreneurs are a unique. The reason I say that is that they're, they're not your regular people, right? You know, they want to do something for the better of the world, you know, for the world, for themselves, you know, especially speaking from, you know, for the Latin or like, you know, countries that are not as, you know, advanced, you know, as the U.S. or China, right? A lot of them, entrepreneurship is out of necessity. And I personally have never felt that. And what I believe in is that, you know, while I cannot, I cannot live through all those life experiences, you know, coming up with like all those great ideas, what would be the most effective way to channel that? And that to me would be capital. And that kind of, you know, speaks to why I wanted to be like an investor, because I want to be able to, you know, feel all these great visions, right? So when I first started off, you know, when I first set out, I was thinking to myself, okay, not every business can be a unicorn. You know, that takes a lot of skills, commitment, but also a lot of luck, right? But what I could do, you know, hopefully with like the, the principles from the bootcamp and my experience and all that, I could at least turn them into self-sustainable business. Because I believe, you know, every one of them collectively, the world is going to be a better place. And that's kind of like, you know, my motto for mentoring is like, you know, when I'm mentoring, I'm just really helping them to do what they want. And if they do, if they're able to do it, you know, in a sustainable way, the world is going to be better off. 
So that's kind of like my motivation behind that. Thank you so much for going through that with us, Redmond. You've sort of been from so many different perspectives in regards to entrepreneurship, investment, mentorship, and starting companies now. Are there any sort of lessons that you've taken from the investment and mentorship roles that you sort of feel aren't as clear but are very important when you get to the actual starting of companies side of things? Let's see. So I, I would say always, you know, I'm always learning as a mentor. And uh, the good thing about some mentoring program is that I get paired up with like more experienced mentors. So I'm constantly learning in that regard too. And what I think, I, I want to highlight some key differences, right? So Boston, in the Boston area, you have a lot of consultant background people who become mentors or investors. And I think the biggest thing, you know, that contrasts a consultant and a mentor is that a good, men a good consultant tells you what to do and a good mentor just asks a question. And I think that kind of differentiates the two, you know, the mentoring side. So, so I would say, you know, from the other end, when entrepreneurs talk to a mentor, like, you know, just don't try to get like a solid, you know, this is what you should do, answer out of people. And sometimes, you know, it, 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 it's the mentor's fault too. But I would say, you know, I've had entrepreneurs just come to me. So what do you think about this? Do you think, you know, we should hit, you know, 100 people or something like that? What's like a good number? And I always answer back with a question. And I think that's something that's not so clear in, in like a typical mentor-mentee relationship. So, so I would say that, you know, to, to fully utilize your relationship with any mentor, just be prepared to have like an open mind to really be receptive to all those questions because the, the purpose of the mentor is not to necessarily give you the right, right answers right away or like what to do, but it's rather to give you like a directional sense of, you know, where your business could lead or like what are some key questions that you have to validate before you can grow your business a little bit further. I know that answer is part of the question. I think you more than answered the question, but I'm sure helping you if you didn't. <laughs> but um... I was actually wondering too, um, you know, because you did grow up in, in Hong Kong and, and obviously you've lived in the U.S. and you've worked with people in other areas of the world. Um, you know, what, what are some of the, the mentors that have helped you? Are there any, you know, particular um, people or experiences that you really look to that you think were personally or professionally shaping for you? Yeah, I would I would say so. So the professor whom I worked with, you know, on the textbook, we're really close now. So I practically see his kids grow, <laughs> grow up, and that that's has been really interesting too. But you know, I have a lot of an official mentor mentee relationship myself too, and I think they help me shape and in the sense that they're really open. You know, they always have an open door. I can ask whatever I want. So in a sense that I try to do that, I try to replicate that openness to all of the people I talked to, to. I think it, it, this is something that's intangible, right? It's not, it's not something that you can put on paper or like even if you put on paper, it doesn't happen. You know? so, so this is something that I try to cultivate no matter whom I talk to. So, so in that sense, of course, I was shaped that way. And a lot of the mentors, let's see. Yeah, I have, off the top of my head, I have a lot of people that I considered mentors. But you know, as with a lot of things, it's really hard to say. You know, when when exactly did we enter this mentor-mentee relationship, right? And I, I figure it's like a weird question, an awkward question to ask. Like, would you like to be my mentor, if it's not like in an official setting? And and to that, you know, I want to say it, it's more about genuinely building a relationship between you and and the other person. And 
ideally it was always it would always be like a two-way street and but you know before you know it you were both mentors to each other so that's kind of like how i see you know you could build and shape your values around that eventually you realize that your network of mentors and friends you know sh probably share a lot of core same core values you know the same core values and that's kind of like you know how you shape it right um interesting fact there's like a theory out there that you are the the average of like the six closest person to you right nancy have you ever heard of that I have. I hope that says good things about most of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> while not, while I don't believe the number has to be six, <clears throat> I do believe that you 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 try to take like the best out of the, the the people around you, and sort of like a fun fact, one of the one of the people whom I consider a mentor, his dad actually de developed that that notion. So it's really interesting how connected the world is in in a weird way. I think that's a great point. And I think it also sort of another part of that is that you should try and not be the smartest person in whatever room you're in. <laughs> you want to be the person who's yeah. learning from the people that you're spending time with. Now, one of the things... Yeah, I think I'm used to being the stupid one. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely share your experience in that then. <laughs> I uh, have a lot of times where I have been like with a lot of people, especially from the boot camp, been like, Wow, I feel totally overwhelmed by the other people here. <laughs> now, one thing I wanted to ask you about is sort of your perspective on co-founders and like team members, and if there are any criteria that you see as like particularly pertinent when um, starting companies for people to evaluate who they work with. Yes, so so I can speak to that from both sides, right? From an investor's point of view and from like a, like a founder's point of view. Uh, from the investor's point of view, like it's always important to see a team well put together because they have different strengths. So uh, kind of like echoing what you said earlier about surrounding you yourself with like smarter people. If your team seems to be, you know, just having one idea all the time, that means there are too many, too many people in the same room. So, so what we look for, you know, as investors in a team is like the diversity in terms of strength and, you know, why, you know, you could individually say, you know, why each person is the best one for the job. And that's kind of like how you start, you know, assessing a team. And especially with like the technical products, you want to have like a strong technical person who you can confidently, you know, see, you know, um, constructing the row path and also, you know, making it happen. But from like the other end, you know, for from more like an entrepreneur's perspective, I think a strong team is a team that works well together. Now, I, I think that goes without saying, but, but it's just kind of hard, you know. I, I'm sure that a lot of people have, you know, have fr have had friends before that just didn't work out in the long run. So I think that's the same case with with co-founders, especially. But um, just that is so much more commitment. And I guess when I when I when I was thinking about so interesting fact when I talked to Joel, you know, on Shopbook is I did I actually didn't set out to join the team, and I was like, you know, trying to help on the side, and I wasn't I wasn't really going for like the you know, the co-founder title, but eventually, you know, as our relationship evolved, I just feel like, you know, co-founder is something that signifies commitment and also uh, passion towards the same goal. So alignment with the team is really important that one is trust, you know, with, with entrepreneurs. And um, on the other hand, when you try to build out a team, I would suggest that you to think about whether you need a builder, you know, someone who just kind of do whatever you guys agree upon or, or do you need something, you know, you need a co-founder who, you know, who, who is going to test out all those scenarios with you. And both, both, both are fine, 
but you know it just depends on you know who you need at what stage of the company i think it's actually a really powerful point when you say um you know at a certain stage of the company too because um you know it it might make sense for it to just be a solo project in the beginning or you know for some people to leave and other people come in it doesn't have to be like um a permanent marriage or even a permanent divorce type deal and i want to say you know a lot you know i, I guess like 95% of startups at some point you're going to get fired as a, as the ceo because <laughs> if you expand internationally you know if you grow to like a certain stage there're just some things that you're not equipped to do you know you, because the bigger organization the bigger the organization is the less agile it is you know so that makes you your primary value as like an entrepreneurial person diminish you know your your ability to pivot your ability to adapt to different situations you know so that changes when the organization becomes like a behemoth of of of, of an entity just want to throw that out too so so it's not so much like personal right you're not fit for the job it's just like you know there are people out there more equipped with experience and knowledge that could run like a big organization you know when your vision matures yeah i i think as as a founder um well i'll let you know later but i think thinking about what you might want your role to be in that organization later on there are you know still founders that are are in their organization in some aspect even if they're not at the helm and i actually really appreciate that i think that means that they they built something that they truly love but they also really trust in their team so i appreciate that point mm-hmm. Um well I say international because you know the cultural landscape is different too. So you're able to sell in the US is very different than you know selling in the, in China or like in Europe or something like that. So there are people with that expertise that could help your 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 company to do that. Well, sorry that I cut oh, you off. <laughs> Go that's on. an incredibly powerful point too. Um so I, honestly, you know, I love that this community is, you know, this uh diversity of experience viewpoints and cultures and and I think it's so great that you guys uh came together in in sharp focus and and that that you know we've we've seen some of that happen in this community um I I know you're someone that you know really values the the diversity that we have too but I actually wanted to um kind of touch on something that has been on my mind a lot um I know that systematic oppression and discrimination are very real um and they're you know they're big issues we're always all working to solve big issues that none of us can solve alone um but i was wondering if you just feel comfortable maybe talking about discrimination you've witnessed and offer your thoughts on how you think we as a community could work towards inclusivity and just being more proactively anti-racist definitely and Yeah, so fortunately I personally have not experienced a whole lot of that or maybe I did I just didn't acknowledge it. But but I think, you know, this is kind of like entrepreneurship, right? This is a systematic thing that we need to tackle from like a bottoms up approach. So I I would think the first step is to start with awareness. So you've seen a lot of awareness coming from different um areas, right? And you know, whether whether on like women empowerment or like, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, recently anti-Asian 
um, act, um, movements. So I, I would say, I would say, you know, it starts from within. The awareness part is a key part to that. And at least the more people talking about this, the generally more people are going to be aware of that. So I would say that's like the first step to start. And sometimes I don't even recognize it because you know, in my work environment, I, I can't see myself, right? I don't have like a mirror, and I'm usually the only. You know, few Asians in this in the room. So, to me, it's kind of like you know, if I don't see myself, I, I just feel like I'm one of the other all of the other people in the room. So that's that's some that's an, an interesting observation that I've made, you know, um, over the years. But you know, just something interesting that I wanted to point out. But you know, but yeah. So the core, you know, core message for me is to start from within. If you believe that you know what you're doing is right, then you you always can make a difference. Now I never underestimate the, the 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 impact that you can make as an individual, because <clears throat> this is something that could spread, right? You know, your awareness spreads to you know your immediate network, and it's kind of like a ripple effect thing. So, <clears throat> so I would think that that's that would be the way to go. You know, tackling these systematic issues. Apart from hopefully, you know, the the government entities are also on this, right? Absolutely, and I think. Um... I think this is something that, as you say, you don't always know about, like, especially people who aren't even exposed to it personally, they might not even realize that's going on, but it's still happening irrespective of, you know, your awareness. Now, something I wanted to ask you a little bit about, especially considering you've been in all the different roles that you have, about work-life balance. How do you sort of balance your work family life and everything else that you're sort of passionate about well <laughs> it's kind of funny that you asked that because like you know working from home everything is kind of like blended in together it's really hard to tell that you know work life difference now even because you know, i could be replying to emails and stuff but you know what i like to do is try to stay as organized as possible so when i look at my schedule i kind of know like these time slots are allotted to do something and I also have, I think from like one of the last sessions, we talked about burnout and work-life balance. So I suggested that maybe I, I set myself like a 15 minute, you know, sort of like open slot for anything. It's, it's like a buffer slot. So I, if I feel like at any time during the day that I need a break or I just don't want to do something, I would use that 15 minute block to really, you know, decompress a little bit. So that's kind of like how I, you know, keep myself organized and sane, you know, amongst all these activities. And <clears throat> the other thing is to, you know, personally, I have like a to-do list, so I don't always go by schedule, kind of. You know, I know it's a little bit contradicting when I say that, but but the, the concept of to-do list is to not have like a hard deadline to do everything. So I'm not stressing out over these, but I understand that these are things that need to be done. So they, these could be sort of like long-term, short-term goals. You know, or like medium-term goals. That's kind of like how I categorize it in my head, and that has helped me to really prioritize stuff that I need to get out versus stuff that I could, you know, save it for for later. And that has helped me to to really um, be productive and work efficiently within the time. So, so that kind of speaks to it. And on the other hand, you know, I'm fortunate to have like a really supportive family so that I could, you know, focus on what I wanted to do. And I think that's an important piece. You know, you kind of need to recharge from people you you know who support you. So if you feel like you know at any time that you're alone, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hesitate to reach out to people you know who care about you, because that's that 
that as intangible as it is, is actually something that's really important to to go further. You rest, you know, this is the saying, right? You rest so that you can go further. And I think that applies to like, you know, your work-life balance as well. I couldn't agree with you more. And and I am totally imagining that you are a person that has to maybe tell yourself totally to unplug at certain points because I can't even believe how responsive you are when I message you. And you don't have to be and you know that, but I'm sure that you are, you know, just as responsive in your professional life too as you are in your personal life. So I try to. And the good thing of having like multiple things that you're working on is that you can take up your mind just by working on the other thing. So so that that has kind of worked for me as well. <laughs> You know, if if it's things that I enjoy, then you know it, it's not. Yeah, I don't feel the burnout as easily. I would say. I appreciate how how hard you work at that because I definitely <laughs> agree with you that you have to find that balance, or um, unfortunately, it can wind up getting taken out disproportionately somewhere. Um, so I I was actually wondering, kind of adding on to that, you know how how you define and measure success for yourself, because I do feel like that's part of what we do to keep ourselves going when we're involved in a lot of things. Is that, do you measure success personally and professionally differently, do you think, or is it kind of one and the same? I would say they're a little bit different, but you know, I'm a flexible person, you know, those who, who, who know me. And so I never have like, like a set goal that I want to achieve by a certain time, you know, coming from Asia, people get a lot of pressure on marriage, you know, on, you know, when are you going to have kids and all that. Now I'm sure that's is true in other, you know, a lot of other cultures too, but especially so from, from the older generations of, you know, the Asian culture, but I personally never really had that pressure, but, but I would want to say that, you know, when you're aware of these and you, kind of make a big deal out of it, it stresses you out. So I would always say, you know, look inward. And I think that applies to like the context in the company too. When you think that, you know, there's so much going on outside, just look inward, you know, just creating like a strong self, you know, really helps you to go further in professionally or like personal growth. That would be my take on this. But, you know, professionally, how do I measure success? I have like an end goal. So it's kind of like my personal, I guess, you know, I contradicted myself again, but, you know, in professionally, I have like a to-do list. So my end goal is to become an angel investor, basically. So so to do that, then I, I'm not in a rush. So I choose to focus more on the journey. You know, every day I'm learning something new. And I think that's a really good mindset. Like, you know, every day before I go to bed, I try to think of five, five things that I really appreciate. You know, it could be as small as, you know, I, I got like a, I got the right color of M&Ms that I ate today. You know, the first time, you know, I wanted a red one and I got a red one. You know, to as big as, you know, oh, I got a promotion. Or like, you know, we, 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 we got a deal or something like that. And I, get, I guess that little appreciation goes a really long way when you're trying to measure success, both, you know, on your personal end and your professional end. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that sort of clarifies your perspective. And I think that's really helpful to see. Now, I've got a question about, if you've had any times that you have to had to have a major pivot or deviation from your plan that you had at the time and if so you know how did you go about it but also looking back would you change anything about your approach i guess yeah i guess we're always pivoting right and and 
I guess my way of thinking about these is that I always kind of have like two plans, all like contingency plans. So for instance, when I applied to the bootcamp, I was thinking about, so my end goal is to become an angel investor. So if I do get into the bootcamp, maybe I could leverage the network, maybe I could do this and that. But if I don't get in, you know, what are the other alternatives that I could pursue? So I do have like a background in finance and economics. So if the bootcamp didn't work out, you know, where I cannot go sort of like the innovation driven route, then I would go to finance route, you know, which is to work in, you know, maybe VC firms and maybe, you know, get more experience in iBanking and all those, you know, that could propel me to like the end goal that I have. But, you know, in, in, in the event of a pivot, I think is a mindset thing. You're not really, you're not really pivoting if all of those scenarios have played out in your head, more or less. So I'm a, I'm a believer of like a approach called scenario planning. So it's an Oxford approach. If those who, who are interested can look it up. And it's basically planning out scenarios that are plausible. So not necessarily statistically, you know, by probability. It's just something that could happen. So for instance, um, one of the applications of the scenario planning approach was um, there was a startup that, that worked in travel or something like that. And then they had planned out four scenarios, and one of them being, you know, everything just shuts down. You know, it wasn't COVID specifically, but they anticipated a situation where, you know, everything would just shut down. There's no travels anymore and none of that. And they have developed like a contingency plan based of that. So I think that that kind of thinking really helped them survive and even thrive in times of COVID. And that was the effects of scenario planning. So did they pivot? Yes, of course. but but they already had a plan. So it's more about executing what you have in mind. So I, I, I don't know if that clears a little bit, at least in my mind, the difference between you know pivoting and planning ahead. Or maybe planning ahead so you have something to pivot to. <laughs> yes, basically, right? And I think that's some, something that's helpful too, um, especially with startups, um, ones that are pending on a lot of you know, FDA approval or like banking on a big thing happening. What we would always ask is like, you know, what happens if that goes wrong? It, it, I think it shows a lot of uh, commitment and thought if you could come up with like, you know, different scenarios. Okay, if this happens or if it doesn't go well, then we could, let's say, you know, recline to to this disease that we can really cure or like something like that. So, so again, I, I guess it's mental preparedness, right? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of um, a, a disaster recovery plan that you hope you never have to use your CD and E plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you know, COVID was like a true test to that. You know, a lot of companies had like disaster clause and all that. You know, if East Coast fails and we'll just, you know, start our service on the West Coast, we have a lot of backup, blah, blah, blah. But COVID was like a global thing. <laughs> and and to me that was that was that was crazy. But but I, I guess, you know, it brought a lot of goods in the sense that, you know, it brings unity. So I was able to participate in a lot of COVID-related hackathons. And that's really glo truly global because there are people spending time, you know, their own time on solving like a global problem. And, you know, the world coming together, that just warms my heart. <laughs> I mean, you kind of started touching on it, but we've had several guests who um, have, you know, voice both the challenges and the silver lining moments um, brought about as a result of shutdowns, you know, in the pandemic. And so I was going to actually ask you if you could talk about, you know, um, how you've been affected. So you, you kind of started sharing some of the silver lining part. <laughs> I think, you know, I would say, you know, my 
process has probably been accelerated because I can now use my time more efficiently. You know, being an avid networker, um, going to different events has always been a challenge, but now I can schedule things back to back to back. That just saves a lot of time. I'm also able to, I have full control over my schedule. Like I can allocate my time to different things all the time. And, and I think that that kind of, kind of propels my progress a little bit more. So, so personally, I've benefited from this lockdown situation, but I also miss like the in-person stuff incredibly. I think it's very different. You know, at first I didn't feel, you know, as much of a difference, but, you know, as time dragged on, I think it has been over a year now, uh, in-person really builds like a different kind of um, relationship. And, and I think, and I think, you know, after COVID, I would probably, you know, go into a hybrid mode where I always, you know, we'll try to make time to meet people in person. It's not so much about just relationship building. It's just like what you can tell from the other party, from the body language, from how they, you know, react to you or like, you know, just sharing a beer. Right. So, so I would say, yeah, I, I would say that's like kind of like what I, what I've been through, through this lockdown. I, you, you've sort of gone into it a little bit already about sort of having a, a sort of philosophy or vision with how you're navigating yourself. Do you have an overarching sort of self-perspective and guiding vision on how you approach, well, decisions in your life? Yeah, I would say, you know, I try to make moral decisions. I, I think at the very base level, you know, um, you know, at, at one point when I was younger, I thought I could be more greed driven you know when i was like maybe 16 15 you know i thought you know if i become an eye banker i can just you know make big bucks not care about anything that's going on but later on i realized that my priorities have shifted and i think that you know largely attributed to people around me so in my case it's not less about you know me being the average of the six people around me it's just about you know the positive vibes that are coming in uh, that that could shape me. So when Nancy asked about that question, is there any anyone in particular, or like you know, mentors that shaped you? I think it's like people you met along the way. So my guidance is to always have that moral compass, right, in, embedded in my decisions, and something that I could feel happy about. You know, I could sleep over it because you know I feel like I made a conscious uh, um, decision. So that's kind of like my guiding light in terms of that. But professionally, or like you know, more monetary driven wise, I guess, you know, career progression and all that. I would say the decision is to kind of wait two options, right? If I go, you know, using that example again, like the innovation route or like the traditional finance route, what are the pros and cons? That's also something that I'd play out in my head too. And, you know, oftentimes it's not as easily, you know, quantifiable to where you can just like, okay, this route is clearly better. But I was, I would try to say, you know, what I could get out of the journey if I do pursue this route. And then will I be happy with that at the end of it? So it's kind of like working reverse uh, in that sense. So it is, it's a really abstract thing. So I don't know if I could, you know, explain it fully, you know, within, you know, two minutes <laughs> for me. I mean, just not really good at explaining that. We love concrete and abstract answers. <laughs> we try to ask thoughtful questions, so I'm I'm glad that they, they don't all feel easy. Yeah, I, I want to add a little bit before I forget. I think it's dynamic too. Like you know, like I said, I'm always learning. You know, I've come across so many things, like you know, behavioral economics, all those you know, customer sentiment, and then the more you learn, the different theories that are embedded, you know, it changes your 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 
I, I want to, I don't want to use the word principle, like the way of thinking, right? As you, as you go on, you know, hopefully it's an involvement, but, but, you know, constantly assessing myself is definitely something that I try to do. Appreciate that. No, no, I appreciate that. That's, that's very important self-improvement so that you can help others. Absolutely. Hi, uh, thanks, Nancy. Hi, hi, Redmond. It's it's Tadeo. Hi. Um, my question was, what are the key qualities um, or characteristics of a mentor? You've already highlighted uh, at least one of them. You know, the ability to open to ask open-ended questions. But what would you say are the other qualities, uh, characteristics of a of a mentor? I want to preface it by saying that mentors come in all shapes and forms, so there's no like definite quality. But to your point, I think one of the very important things is to be vulnerable. Like being a mentor does not mean that you know all these things, and you know, be able to make the connection to other mentors that could help your mentee is also something that's really important. So I would say, you know, that that's that's one very important quality is to not to have self pride on your role. For more like you know empathy and you know willingness to help people, and that's that's what makes a mentor. And I think you know at the core, mentor are just people who want to help other people. So that's also really important. If you set out to be like a mentor just for your professional resume, you could do it for maybe one year or like maybe two years. I mean, if you're really good at pretending, maybe five years. But as like a lifelong mentor, it, it, you cannot fake that. You know, for for as long as you want. So. So I would say, you know, the the willingness to help others is definitely the key the key core quality of a great mentor. Thanks very much. Hi, Daniel. Good to see you. Hey, Redbone. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> I wanted to ask you something because I mean, uh, I'm an entrepreneur and I I'm, I'm I'm still undecided on some things. And I invested in a second office, but now we are all working from home. And I'm thinking about shutting it down and just maintaining one of them. But uh, sometimes I don't know if I keep the investment. Uh, how predictable you think it is and how uh, the pandemic affects investment? Because uh, I know that you work with this. So. Mm -hmm. so is it specific to the office space or is it like, you know, should I still keep my investment in the company? No, in general, like, I mean, you have an investment, but you don't know how it's going to go from the next six months. So how... Mm -hmm. You, you're holding it up or are you trying to be yeah. more safe about it? How do you see it? Now? So the first question that I would ask is, you know, how much runway they still have? And if they don't, like, you know, are they going li to li uh, liquidate or, you know, are they going to try to keep on the business for as long as possible? So that's something that I would talk to the founders about, you know, um, whether or not you have a plan at all, <laughs> you know, in light of this. And I think, you know, the decision on keeping the office is just like a... a, a a small version of how they would tackle these things. I would I would try to assess their analytical ability on this. So if they do want to keep the office, what are the benefits of that? Okay, so that when when we resume, you know, in three months or like they set like a soft timeline, we could definitely do something with the office to drive something in. So that's like a related benefits to having an office versus you know we want to go full remote so to, so to be more efficient with our capital so that now we have like three more months of run rate. So for me, it's more important to try to assess their way of thinking and to see whether they're worth the investment in the, in the sense that, you know, they're analytical enough and aware enough of the situation rather than, you know, what are the ROIs if we do keep the office and what are the straight ROI if we don't keep the office. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect. I mean, that, that's just what I was thinking. Uh, now that we work at, at home, I can just uh, stop renting the office and use all the money to invest like in Google ads or whatever. You know, it's going to be much more uh, efficient and better for my company now and for the next three months or so. So probably going to do that. But there are long-term benefits of having an office, right? You know, sometimes people rent, you know, as the CIC or like the innovation centers just to have that presence. So if that's something that your business, you know, could benefit from, that might be, you know, in the, in the equation too. Yeah, very nice. Thanks for the answer. It was perfect. No, I was happy to talk. Like, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a person of a lot of interest and you cannot bore me. So throw me at the weirdest stuff, you know, I, Personally, I'm really passionate about clean tech, blue tech, and all that. So I follow a lot of different groups and, of course, you know, mentors in these areas so that I always, I always get, you know, inspired when I have these conversations. Well, to be honest, I was going to ask you a different question, but I don't even know what blue tech is. Can you explain that a little bit more? <laughs> oh, that's just like ocean tech, you know, ocean-related stuff. So maybe like fish or maybe like the challenge that we did, you know, how, how do we stop that, um, the, you know, whales getting caught up in nets and all that. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so I'm just not familiar with the, the hip lingo. That doesn't surprise me. Oh, I mean, that happens a lot. When I read the text, you know, I have to Google, like, what does this stand for? <laughs> like, I don't know, G GSM or something like that. So, so that, again, you know, speaks to, like, the vulnerable part, right? Sure. Being vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. Right, no, I was going to say, um, we are approaching the end of the hour, so I just wanted to make sure you're good um, on time. Do you have a, a few more minutes for a couple more questions or? Yeah, yeah, I have time. Just making sure. And we really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Um, I, I was actually wondering, you know, when someone is kind of going about thinking about like a disaster recovery plan, um, Daniel got me thinking a little bit, are there, um, is there sort of a, a system or a framework that you would use to build that, um, to to think about, you know, what stays true to the values of the company, like what sort of pivots would be appropriate? Because um, I think it's, it's like you said, best to do that when you don't have emotions involved. Well, the, I, I guess, I guess not necessarily like no emotions, but, but I want to say, so, so a lot of this could be prevented with like the 24 steps. <laughs> this is something that, you know, that is happening, right? If you validated a problem really, really well in the, in the beginning, there are less chance that you need to, you know, do like a full pivot per se. But, but I want to say, you know, in terms of like a disaster recovery plan, um, the first question in the context of a startup is always runway. Like, you know, if you, if your business continues to go down, how much time you have to really turn things around and all that. And I was also thinking about, you know, what are the most immediate, you know, actionable plans that you could do to, you know, either with two goals in mind, right? One goal is to save the company. The other goal is to continue to grow. I guess that kind of depends on, do you want to stay afloat for now? And then let's say, you know, the, the tricky event happens in three months that everybody gets vaccinated and your company can survive again. Or like, you know, is this something that is not in sight where you have to devise a completely, you know, different pivot that you have to start a new sustainable business? So, so I guess a lot of it is, you know, <laughs> the good old, it depends. But, you know, the way of thinking about it is to, you know, wait out your resources right now and, you know, and, and really try to come up with a time frame where you can, you can, you can the, the time frame that you can have to make things happen. I think that would be like the, the, the most immediate step that I would take. Thank you. That's really cool to hear. Like, I, 
I feel like these kinds of things are things that you'd perceive as not being able to plan for, but understanding that there is a way to sort of address it does really help. I think you've probably heard us ask this question a couple of times, but I th- as you know, we, we like to ask this question each time someone comes on. Do you have any sort of best lessons or words of wisdom that you'd like to leave us with? And obviously take it as a very free f- free-form question for you to interpret how you will. I don't really have like a word, word, word sort of wisdom, but I, w- I would want to say just be open. Like this is something that I lived by, like be open, be vulnerable and be respectful. I think that goes a long way. And believe it or not, like people actually, people actually feel that, you know, they, they I don't know, it's a very vague idea, but you know, I've seen people who have, you know, from the, from an outsider's perspective, you know, I have two students, reach out to the same mentor that I introduced and one of them just hit it off like really well and the other one didn't. And it turns out that, you know, the small differences really went a long way. So it could be as small as like, you know, that student didn't reply or like didn't didn't really give an update after, you know, receiving like a mentoring session and that just didn't lead anywhere. Partly it could also be due to cultural differences. You know, some people don't like to bother people. US US is like always back and forth. You know, hey, how are you doing? Just checking in. But, you know, maybe in other parts of Europe, people don't tr- generally try not to bother people when, unless they have something solid to report. So that also speaks to the cultural part. But, you know, overall, I just feel like, you know, be genuine in the in the relationship. That, that would go a long, long way. Well, obviously, I have a bias, but I, th- I think that that is uh, very, very well said advice. Um, I, I absolutely feel like you are <laughs> definitely one of those um, genuine people. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'll, I'll just say since we're wrapping up too, like it, it greatly helped me to have um, you be that sort of person and that sort of anchor to me planning the Boston event. And also, I mean, you were physically there, but, um, but I think even more so it was just because you were just so, <laughs> yeah, you, you were, you were respectful. You asked good questions, but you were just so genuine about everything. Like you, you know, you told me when you thought things probably wouldn't work. And um, I, I think people do respond well to that. I think sometimes maybe we're afraid that um, they'll reject, you know, our true self, but um, you find people with which you deeply align when you do that. So <laughs> thank you for, for that advice. So I appreciate I appreciate it. And you know, just sort of like a one last comment, I don't want to keep everybody for, for too long. So if you're looking at time and you have a business that you want to talk about or just bounce ideas, feel free to reach out. And on the other hand, if you feel like you know you want to have something to do with Sharp Focus, you know, with this meaningful mission, please also reach out to us. We're always actively looking for partnerships and you know just try to expand our reach to those people you need. That's great. Thank you so much, Redmond. We really appreciate all of your thoughts and, and everything you shared with us and taught us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone. Yeah, and, and thanks to everyone that joined us today too. Just so you know, this is the largest group we've had so far live. So <laughs> we really appreciate um, everyone bringing you know, their energy to today's discussion. Um, we feel really fortunate to be part of this community and for the opportunity to bring this sort of cooperative learning experience each week. And have a great week ahead, everyone. Thanks, Redmond. Thank you, have a great week. Thank you, Redmond. Have a good one, guys. 
This has been Nancy and Spencer on Founders Voyage Weekly Podcast. Our speaker each week can be reached through our Discord server. Our intro and outro music is from the song Something for Nothing by Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band. We'll be back again next week for another episode. Until then, have a great day and continue your voyage.